Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm with my good buddy, Kevin Worth. How are you doing? Uh, Doing terrific, Dennis. How are you? I'm doing very good. So, um, you know, you're kind of in transition uh, from previous job to future job, and uh, um, I talked you into giving us a uh, some words of wisdom on uh, combat anesthesia. Um, if you wouldn't mind just doing a real quick intro of yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is Kevin Worth. I'm a nurse anesthetist in the United States Army. Um, uh, I work currently at Womack Army Medical Center, and uh, I enjoy teaching. And uh, Dennis has asked me to just talk about some, uh, some what what anesthesia looks like downrange. So here I am. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right. So first slide is just uh, just going to talk about anesthesia. Um, second slide is just who I am. And uh, if you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to hit me up at the email that's listed. It's uh, kevin.t.worth.mil at health.mil. And then uh, this is just your generic disclaimer. I won't read it out loud for you. And then we'll get to slide four, which is kind of the meat and potatoes of anesthesia. All right. So when when we uh, when we learn about anesthesia, you know, our instructors talk about the four pillars of anesthesia, and they all happen to start with A, which makes things uh, easier to remember. So those four pillars are amnesia analgesia, akinesia, and then autonomic stability. And of the four, um, autonomic stability is actually the one where uh, we, that's, that's where we, where we make our money. And, or this is what we're, we get paid for. Uh, and also obviously amnesia, but the big one is autonomic stability, but we'll start out with amnesia and in a downrange environment, typically um, the best medication that I carry for amnesia is midazolam or Versed. We do carry propofol, um, but typically not used for trauma, hypovolemic trauma patients. Um, we can use that if we have to reduce a fracture or um, help one of the providers reduce a dislocated shoulder. Uh, and then also we do have a uh, potent inhalational agent. Those are our gases. But if you're going to do a TIVA, typically the, the amnestic agent, the agent that's going to cause amnesia is Versed. And then analgesia. And then the, I want to um, just let you guys know, I, I didn't, I specifically didn't list ketamine and amnesia because um, it's not a reliable amnestic. So a lot of the guys you'll talk to specifically downrange, um, when you're using just straight ketamine, um, <clears throat> they do remember the hallucinations. They do remember um, uh, just vivid dreams. And sometimes those dreams are not uh, the ones that they want to remember. So I specifically didn't list it there. Under analgesia, I've listed ketamine. Ketamine is a potent analgesic along with fentanyl. Uh, hydromorphone, and then any type of regional technique is going to provide analgesia as well. 
And the other pillar, akinesia, we use just a fancy word for don't move. You know, obviously my job is to provide a a stable surgical platform for the surgeon um, to perform their surgery. If the patient's moving, obviously it's a lot more challenging for a surgeon to uh, repair whatever is injured. So typically the, the medication that we all carry downrange is vecuronium. And the reason why I choose vecuronium and a lot of the the guys I work with choose vecuronium is it's lyophilized and it doesn't need to be necessarily temperature controlled like rock uranium. And the concern that I always have with rock uranium um, is that is it temperature controlled in transit or does it sit out in a loading dock somewhere where it's 150 degrees and it's just degrading that medication? If you can guarantee that it's um, temperature controlled from, you know, point of origin to wherever you are, then I would say, you know, by all means, go ahead and use it. The other medication that we sometimes use for akinesia very briefly is succinylcholine. Um, we do not, or at least I do not carry succinylcholine downrange. Uh, that is one of the trigger agents for um, something called malignant hyperthermia. And we don't carry the antidote to that um, particular uh, problem set. So we just don't carry succinylcholine. And then also akinesia, um, like a regional technique, like you can uh, do a femoral nerve block and a sciatic nerve block and definitely get that lower extremity to, to not move for the surgeon. Now, autonomic stability, that's um, that's a big one, right? So when we talk about the autonomic nervous system, there's two separate portions of that, and that's the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, when we're doing a general anesthetic at the hospital, and say, for example, we're taking out, you know, we're, we're doing an anesthetic where the surgery um, is, is a gallbladder coming out. So in that particular scenario, we don't want either one of those systems to fire. You know, like if the sympathetic nervous system fires, the patient gets hypertensive and tachycardic. And if the parasympathetic nervous system fires, the patient becomes profoundly bradycardic to the point of you can have sinus pauses, asystole, and um, loss of blood pressure. So that is, you know, the, we want to keep, you know, the heart rate at 70. We want to keep the blood pressure, you know, 120 over 70. We, we don't want either one of those systems to fire. So in a trauma patient, it's a, it's a bit of a different story. They're alive because their sympathetic nervous system is firing. And, you know, as they become more hypovolemic, their sympathetic nervous system is what's keeping them alive. And we don't want to knock that out with any type of uh, medication that we're going to give them. So when you're trying to plan for whether it's a sedation or whether it's uh, a general anesthetic, you just need to figure out how are you going to accomplish those four pillars. So most guys downrange, most medics downrange will carry Versed, ketamine, and fentanyl. And those are three very good drugs to accomplish, whether it's sedation, all the way up to a general anesthetic. Like you can do it, those three drugs, it's just dose dependent. Um, So that's kind of the the basics of what we learn in the very beginning of how to plan for an anesthetic, like how are we going to accomplish those pillars? And it, it can be, a, you can do it in a bunch of different ways, but typically downrange, if you can do a regional technique, I would, I would highly suggest trying to do that. Um, that way you avoid uh, giving the um, 
medications uh, uh, through the IV and you have the systemic effects versus just local effects from a, a regional block. So, and the, the next slide um, we'll get into, and the next slide talks more about um, kind of where it's mean arterial pressure. So when I talk to either a line unit medic or uh, a SOCOM trained medic or a paramedic or one of the flight medics, I, you know, we are in, in, the, in the hypovolemic trauma patient from start to finish. Um, we are all trying to do the same thing. We are trying to maintain MAP, right? So from the, the point of injury to the, to the ground medic that's doing um, uh, tactical care under fire, they are trying to maintain mean arterial pressure. They're going to do that by putting a tourniquet on. They're going to do that by inserting an IV and giving blood. They're going to do that by um, relieving any type of um, uh, like a tension pneumo or any type of tension physiology in the chest. So I think that this diagram, and if you anybody that comes into the OR with me, they they definitely will see this this diagram, and I, I like to talk through it because. The story of MAP has a lot of different players in that story. So if you were to just start with MAP and go down to your left and look at the systemic vascular resistance. So your systemic vascular resistance is dependent upon the autonomic nervous system. So you have your sympathetic tone and your parasympathetic tone, and both of those systems have tone at any given moment. That's why your heart rate is 70, not 120 or not 30. That's why your blood pressure is 120 over 70, not 190 over um, 110 or 60 over 40. So the systemic of vascular resistance is just a tone in the vascular system in your body. So now if we, if we head up and we look at cardiac output, cardiac out, output has two factors, and that would be your heart rate and your stroke volume. So heart rate's pretty straightforward. You know, your heart rate's 70 beats per minute. And then whatever volume per beat is ejected from the left ventricle is what you have for cardiac output. Now, if we start at stroke volume, and that's the volume that's ejected from the left ventricle, which e with each beat of the heart, we can go up to end diastolic volume. So that's the volume in the left ventricle right before systole. So it, whatever volume that happens to be, it could be 100 cc's, it could be 150 cc's, but that's the volume in the left ventricle right before um, it, the ventricle starts to contract. And that is dependent upon preload. And preload is dependent upon intravascular volume. So, um, so somebody that's hypovolemic, we can just go down the trail, right? So if your intravascular volume is low, whether you're dehydrated or you're um, unfortunately losing blood from some sort of traumatic event, you will have decreased preload you will have decreased end diastolic volume, which decreases stroke volume, which decreases cardiac output, which decreases mean arterial pressure. And your body tries to compensate for that loss of preload by increasing heart rate and increasing the systemic vascular resistance, turning your five liter tank into a two liter tank. The other factor in stroke volume is the end systolic volume. So your heart is in systole 
and it's and it's contracting and blood is being ejected out of the left ventricle into the aorta right at the end of systole the aortic valve closes and that volume that's left in the left ventricle that is the end systolic volume so the volume left in the in the left ventricle at the end of systole and the two kind of players that um, work on that are contractility and afterload. So if your contractility is high, you will have a, a you will generate more force in the uh, forceful contraction in the left ventricle. You will eject more blood um, during systole, and then your end systolic volume is actually lower. Now afterload, um, this was always a little bit of a, a challenge for me to understand in school. But I, the way I think about it and the way I, ex, the way I explain it is, is if you are a red blood cell and you are in the left ventricle and during systole, there's something called isovolemic contraction. And that's the heart starts to contract, but no blood is being ejected. And if you were a hemoglo or excuse me, a red blood cell and you were leaning up against the aortic valve during that isovolemic contraction, you're waiting for the pressure in the heart to kind of match the pressure or over, just overcome the pressure in the aorta in order to open the aortic valve. And then you look, so if you were that red blood cell and you were looking down the aortic, um, the aorta, that's kind of the, the, the afterload. You just basically are that pressure um, that the heart has to pump against in order to open up the aortic valve. And if anybody has a better um, way to describe that, or if I'm describing it wrong, please email me and we can, we can definitely put an update to that on uh, the podcast here. So the reason why I think this is so important is, and especially in the, in the current um, environment where, you know, we're talking about prolonged field care and we're talking about critical care in the um, austere environment that you have to understand how all these factors talk to one another in order to um, maintain your map, because you might have to adjust the contractility. You might have to adjust the systemic vascular resistance. You might have to adjust the intravascular volume in order to maintain map. And typically in a hypovolemic patient, it's straightforward. You need to give um, blood and then typically blood, uh, when you're doing an infusion of blood, you're gonna get hypocalcemic that hypocalcemia will decrease contractility, hence you need to give calcium, and the calcium will increase contractility. So those two things, blood plus calcium, will typically, um, you know, you'll maintain your mean arterial pressure. So that's why I think this diagram is, is important, and I think everybody from the, the, the line unit medic through the, the spectrum of medics to battalion aid stations to FSTs all the way back to um, wherever the, the role four is that we're all trying to maintain map. So hence this diagram. Um, I think if you have any questions about it, feel free to, to hit me up on my email. Um, but I think take a look at it, try to understand it. And um, it's, uh, it's, just a, it's just a good piece of information to have. So we'll move along to the next one which this kind of describes um, when you give any medication, but let's just use uh, ketamine uh, for an example. So when we inject ketamine into the blood, 
or the, the um, central compartment, which on this diagram is, is V1, it builds up a concentration gradient. And when you build up that concentration gradient, it's, the medication will go down its concentration gradient into other compartments within the body. The compartment that we want it to get to is the brain and the spinal cord, but it will also go to muscle, it will go to organs, it will go to fat. So it's just a kind of an idea of well, how does the medication get to where it's going? It's really just concentration gradients. And the one thing that I always try to impress upon people is that if you have a hypovolemic patient and you're giving, say, for example, uh, let's just say a regular patient in the operating room who's not hypovolemic, they have five liters of blood in their central compartment or in their vascular space, um, and you give 100 milligrams of ketamine, that 100 milligrams is put into five liters. So that particular... Um, amount of drug in that space creates a, um, a gradient for it to go down. Now take that same amount of drug and put it in a compartment that only has two liters of blood. The concentration of that drug is much higher. So it's going to go down their, its concentration gradient quicker to the other tissue sites. So just something to think about. And then as you start to um, when you become hypovolemic, your, your body is cutting blood off to mo like almost everything except the brain. So eventually, you're going to get to a point where you're going to put this ketamine in the bloodstream, and that concentration is going to build up very quickly, and it's going to go to the brain very quickly just simply because that might be the last thing that's getting perfused. So it's just something to think about when you're dosing your medication in a trauma patient do I need to give the book dose of the one mg or two whatever, or two megs or three megs per per kilo, or should I start smaller just because I know this person doesn't have the same amount of blood in their bloodstream and the concentration is going to build up quicker? So that's kind of the the diagram that we learn in school, and then I came up with this next diagram, which I understand quite a bit, which is on the next slide. <clears throat> so you've got your Tiva bag, you've got ketamine and Versed. Uh, in this bag, it glows, goes into the bloodstream, it builds up a concentration gradient, it goes to the brain, and it goes to the spinal cord, and then eventually you're going to reach an equilibrium. So the pressure gradient in the blood is about the same as the pressure gradient in the brain and the spinal cord, and once you've reached equilibrium, all you need to, you're now you're at a steady state. So what you're infusing is um, has you know, the metabolism of that drug has matched the infusion rate, so you're potentially not building up this huge concentration in the brain anymore. But the one other thing that I don't have on this diagram is all the other places that this drug goes. So let's say you turn the Tiva concoction off, and however the Versed and ketamine is metabolized, the liver, um, and then excreted most likely uh, it, you know, via the, the renal system, all of that, all of that concentration of, of drug is going to come out of the fat, fatty tissues. It's going to come out of the muscles. It's going to come out of those organs. And then it's going to build up again, a concentration gradient in the blood. And that concentration gradient in the blood might be high enough to where it goes back into the spinal cord and back into the brain. So 
all of this works in reverse. If you say you're going to do a general anesthetic on somebody and um, you're at the end of this and you're going to wake them up, let's say you had to do like a fasciotomy on a lower extremity, you don't plan on keeping this person intubated. Um, then when you turn off your medicine, it just takes time for that medicine to reverse itself and come out of the brain, come out of the spinal cord, into the blood, and get metabolized. So it just might take some time to wake somebody up. So moving to the, to the next um, slide, this is, the, this is the, the TIVA that I use um, when I am deployed. And you can use this for either sedation or you can use it for a general anesthetic. Um, but it comes out of the war surgery manual. I think the latest copy of the war surgery manual I have is it's a few years old, but it still um, contains this uh, mixture. And I've, I've used this mixture. I've done, um, I think the longest surgery I did with this particular mixture was about nine hours. And it took about 45 minutes for the, the I, I had to get the patient extubated at the end. I wasn't able to, we had to hand that patient off to a, a place that just didn't have the ability to take a vented patient. Um, and uh, it took about 45 minutes to, to get them, um, get them to a point where I could extubate them and felt comfortable that they would be maintaining their own airway. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. You, you take um, 750 of ketamine and you take 25 milligrams of Versid and you put that in uh, 250 of normal saline. And a lot of people don't have pumps downrange. They don't have syringe pumps. So we just use 60 drop tubing. And the, the math is, is pretty easy on this. So the anesthesia is just kilos divided by two. That will give you your mils per hour. And then sedation is kilograms divided by four. Um, and that gives you your mils per hour for sedation. So it, it's a good place to start. You can, if somebody is extremely unstable, obviously you can, if the kilo is divided by two, like let's say to make the math easy, if your patient is 100 kilos and you divide that by two, it's 50. And that tells you that you want to do this at 50 mils per hour. Then if the patient was really unstable, maybe you would say, well, I'm going to run it at, you know, 30 mils an hour and see if they tolerate that initial starting dose. And then we'll, we'll, we can up it from there. So the way you calculate this with 60 drop tubing is straightforward. If you want to run it at 50 mils an hour, it's 50 drops per minute. If you want to run it at 40 mils per hour, it's 40 drops per minute. 25 mils per hour, it's 25 drops per minute. So it's, it's straightforward. It's easy. So when you're under duress, this is, you don't have to necessarily think about, you know, you're not busting out a calculator to try to figure this out. So if you want to, this is what I do. I have a, um, a little piece of paper that I've already kind of, and I, I put some, you know, clear tape over it. And I have a hundred kilos divided by two, 75 kilos divided by two, 50 kilos divided by two. So that way I've, you know, I got the big, the big person in front of me, I've got the, the medium size and then the small person. And I kind of know the mills per hour that I'm going to start with. And the nice thing about this particular mixture from the war surgery manual is after the surgery, if you're going to leave somebody intubated, um, then you just decrease the dose or the drops per minute. And now you've just moved into sedation. So one of the things that I, you know, you talk about when you talk going from, you know, light sedation to medium sedation to deep sedation to a general anesthetic, 
I always just tell people like if if you need to provide any type of airway maneuver, you're probably on the verge of a general anesthetic. Like if you're doing a jaw thrust, um, if you're putting an oral airway in, that tells me that that patient is no longer maintaining their own airway. And you've, you've, you've crossed the line from deep sedation to general anesthesia. And it's the danger of that is if you're sedating somebody that doesn't have a definitive airway, the definitive airway is an ET tube or um, a crike, then their airway is not protected. So any type of fluid, whether it's saliva or blood or vomitus or anything for that matter, when it hits the vocal cords, they're not going to cough. They're, it's just going to be aspirated into their lungs versus somebody that's maintaining their airway reflexes. They might be sedated, but if they do get any fluid into that, um, that area, they're going to cough and they're going to protect their airway. So when you're thinking of the continuum of anesthesia, wide awake to general anesthetic, really the, the tipping point is you're having to do an airway maneuver to keep them ventilating. And do they have airway reflexes or not? And if they, those two things, then you're, you're in a general anesthetic and you want to back off on your sedation. If that, if your goal is to sedate somebody, then don't wander off into um, general anesthesia land because that's where you can get into trouble. So that's kind of the, the, the end of the lecture portion of this. It's pretty quick. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and really the, the questions are, can be, I've, I've, Given this lecture before, I've gotten lots of different questions. Um, so, but what do you got for me, Dennis? Um, so, as far as I guess situations that I've run into, okay, mm -hmm. I'm giving ketamine uh, with Versed, and I've given bumps of fentanyl, mm -hmm. and because of the patient's situation, um, we needed to sedate them and actually get them onto a vent just because of chest trauma. Mm -hmm. And just actually getting control of uh, hypoxia. So um, while we've been doing that, and that is um, we're winning in that area, I notice that his pressures are starting to not only low, uh, reduce, but also the pulse pressures are starting to get wider and wider and wider. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in my head, I'm not thinking um, hypotension because he's bleeding anymore because I'm, I'm pretty confident that we have control of those with, with tourniquets and ligation, but because it's getting wider and wider, I'm thinking his vessels are getting more dilated. And the only thing I can think of is that it's the drugs doing that. Um, so one, is that correct? Yes. I, I think, you know, anytime you have a trauma patient and you've, you, even if you've stopped the, the bleeding, um, there's still like when you're, when you're bleeding out, you're not just bleeding out of your vascular system. Like there is fluid coming out of the intracellular and the interstitial area, a lot of it. And that fluid is being drawn into the intravascular space in order to, you know, maintain some sort of uh, perfusion pressure or a map. Um, so even if you've put the blood back and you think that you've got them, um, uh, resuscitated, you still have to understand that some of that volume that you're putting in there is not just staying in the vascular space. It's also going back into the cellular space. It's going back into the interstitial space. So you're definitely losing fluid that way. 
Um, but yes, you're, you are correct. Anytime we do a general anesthetic, whether it's on, you know, somebody who's normal volemic or, um, their blood pressure drops, their heart rate drops. And, um, sometimes to the point where we have to give fluid, we have to give vasopressors to keep their map above a certain amount. So we're make sure we're perfusing the brain. We make sure we're perfusing the kidneys. So now in a, in a trauma patient with trauma physiology, um, their sympathetic nervous system is still firing. And, um, you know, even, even ketamine, ketamine in the face of somebody who is catecholamine depleted, um, it's a myocardial depressant, right? So you have a patient who, let's say, has been running around for eight hours in the mountains and it's 100 degrees, you know, and they're in a gunfight. Their sympathetic nervous system is going to be firing for that long. They're using a lot of their catecholamines and then they get injured. They start bleeding out. They're using more catecholamines. So at some point, you know, the, the body, they've, there's, they're, reservoir of catecholamines is depleted and now you're um and now you're giving them narcotic you're giving them midazolam which typically midazolam is pretty um a pretty stable drug for giving hypovolemic patients um and so is ketamine but even then like you'll decrease the sympathetic response using those medications and then um, the other way I think about it, and maybe this is, is not the correct way to think about it, but like, for example, you, you jump out of an airplane and you, you, you've, your sympathetic nervous system fires and then you hit the ground and you're like, Oh, I'm alive. And then it's like, you, you, you're almost like falling asleep because you're just crash. So, um, I also think about that in trauma patients as well. I think about like, you get them to the point where they're good and you're giving them, um, you're taking care of their pain with the fentanyl and the ketamine, um, that their, their body is just finally just like, oh, I'm, I'm good. So you just see that overall decrease in heart rate, decrease in blood pressure. Um, and that can just be from a, the medicine and a, you've kind of got them out of the woods a little bit and now their body's kind of like, okay, I can, I can back off on the sympathetic response. The other thing that you also see is anytime, and I, we've talked about this before, is just the change of um, negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation. Like you are decreasing preload. Um, so it could also be from that. So if you get into a scenario where you're sedating somebody, you got them on the ventilator and say your, you know, your PEEP is elevated or your tidal volumes are hot or your tidal volumes or whatever they are. Um, you could try, you know, maybe decrease the peep a little bit, maybe decrease tidal volume a little bit and increase respiratory rate. And just kind of, you, you, it's one of those things where you just kind of have to tinker with it to see, um, what's going to work. But okay. yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what you see. And I, I don't, I don't think there's like a, like a, a right answer. I think it's like, okay, I'm going to maybe back off on, you know, giving him Versed and fentanyl and just maybe use a little bit more fentanyl. And see if that works. Or I'm going to try to back off on giving fentanyl. I'm going to use. A, I'm going to make a, maybe a little bit of a higher dose of ketamine and Versed, and see if that works. Or change some vent settings um, and go from there. The other thing that um, I, I try to impress upon the people that come into the operating room is how powerful carbon dioxide in your blood is. So carbon dioxide is a is 
as you, if you can imagine, just hold your breath, what happens? Like if you hold your breath long enough, like your sympathetic nervous system is going to fire. Your heart rate's going to go up. Your blood pressure is going to go up. And it's, it's because of that CO2 is rising. So if you have somebody on a ventilator and you've got them ventilated to a point where they're, you know, their P, their CO2, their end tidal CO2 is around 35, let that creep up, let that creep up to 40, let it creep up to 45. And sometimes just that sympathetic tone from the, the, the carbon dioxide in your bloodstream can help you with your blood pressure. Obviously, you know, if somebody's got a head injury, you're not going to want to do that. But um, like in the, in the operating room, I'll let the entitled CO2 creep up if I find myself giving a lot of vasopressors and I'll let it creep up to a, you know, I'm not going to let it get too high, but, but, you know, I'll go to 45, I'll go to, to a little bit higher than that. And then you find yourself giving less vasopressors. So mm -hmm. that's one way. So it's, it's a balancing act. It's like, a, okay, like how much drug do I have to give? Do I have to mess with my ventilatory settings? Um, do I need to give more blood? Maybe, you know, wherever you're at and just kind of, you know, see, see what you have to do to balance out your sedation, your event settings in order to maintain that map. No, definitely makes sense. Um, I guess given that we have, you know, all the options um, as far as things to change, what would you attack first? Would you attack, hey, I want to give this guy fluids first? Or... I I think in a, in a trauma patient, I would probably give um, either fluid first or calcium. So okay. depending upon how much blood you've given him, um, you'd be surprised just um, like you've, you give that, that guy, you know, you know, another hundred milligrams of calcium. Um, and all, all of a sudden your blood pressure is fixed. Everything looks good. And it's just because they were hypocalcemic. So I would probably, and if you're in a scenario where like maybe the map is, or the, the systolic blood pressure is kind of sagging in the eighties and you want to just get it up to 90, you don't have to go crazy. You can give, you know, 250 milligrams of ketamine or excuse me, of calcium and just see what happens, you know, maybe give 500, see what happens and go from there. Like if you're in a, in a scenario where you're not like crashing, then you, you can, you can be a little bit more, um, deliberate in what you're doing. Like you can like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give him, uh, you know, a, a bolus of maybe some LR, like you, you've given him 10 units of, of whole blood, right. Which is, which is a blood volume, right? So that's five liters of blood. And you're like, man, this guy's still sagging. Let me start with some calcium chloride. I think he might be hypocalcemic because we did give a lot of citrate with that blood. So you give the calcium chloride and yeah, it improves, but not where you're thinking. You're like, all right, well, let me, let me, let me let his end tidal CO2 rise, which is easy. You just turn down his, his or her, um, respiratory rate and you let it climb up to 45, just kind of see what happens and then go, okay, well, I don't think we need any more blood here where we, let me give a 250 CC bolus of, of LR or sodium chloride and just, and just kind of see if, if that works, but it's all a balancing act. And, um, I think it really depends upon how much blood have you given, how much blood have they lost? You know, do we need more calcium? Do we need to adjust vent settings or do I just need to back off on my sedation? So the problem that I find, um, when you're trying to back off on sedation, um, it can be challenging, right? So you back off on sedation to the point 
where now they're not, they're asynchronous with the vent, they're bucking, they're all over the place. And then what happens? You overshoot because then now you're like, oh God, I got to get them back down. So now you're giving them fentanyl, you're up in your, um, your ketamine and versed infusion, and now they're bottoming out again. And you're like, ah, and then you're like slowing it down and stopping it. And then you're trying to get their blood pressure back up. And then they start bucking again because they're not getting any um, sedation. So it's you kind of chasing what I call the pharmacological tail, right? You're like, I mm-hmm. give, I give, I give, I don't give enough. They buck, I give too much. And then I'm, I'm trying to get their pressure back up and then they're, and then I turn everything off and then they're bucking. And then you're like, so it's, you want to be gentle with your movements. If you're, if the blood pressure allows you to be now, if your blood pressure is really low, the quickest way to get it up is to give calcium chloride in that environment. Most people aren't going to push epi. Most people aren't going to push norepi or any of those medicines. They're just going to push calcium chloride. And um, as long as they have a, you know, a big bore IV that's flowing well or calcium gluconate, um, that's going to, that's going to fix your blood pressure fairly quickly um, for about 10 minutes. And then that gives you some 10 minutes minutes to kind of go, okay, what do I need to do here? And then you're going through, you know, do we have any, did, did they have a, you know, a, um, a subclinical pneumothorax or some sort of, and now you've put them on positive pressure ventilation and it's getting worse. So you can go through, listen to lung sounds and just kind of reevaluate all of your interventions and make sure you're not missing anything. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Now, during uh, while you were giving your answer, you mentioned a fluid that was not blood in a trauma patient. Was that an accident or not necessarily? I think um, I've seen and I've seen this a few times, and it, it's it's where people just maybe get too much um, packed red blood cells, and now their hematocrit is like seventy because they didn't get FFP to match the um, the what's it called. The, the packed RBCs. So you don't mm-hmm. see it as much, I think, with whole blood, but I've definitely seen it with packed RBCs where somebody gets, you know, way, wait, I wouldn't say over transfusion with packed RBCs. They just got under transfused with FFP or what or type of plasma. And you're looking at a crit, you're, you draw the blood and you're like, this guy's crit is 70. His blood is sludge. Um, and you have to dilute that out with something. Um, so, and you don't even know what the true hematocrit is. You don't know what the true hemoglobin is because you've just got transfused pure packed RBCs. So, yeah, I mean, you could give crystalloid in that scenario if, if, you, it, but also FFP would also probably be a, a better answer. But yeah, you, I would, I wouldn't say, you know, if you're having, if your blood pressure sagging, you feel like you've resuscitated them enough, you're in a resource constrained environment, you like blood is not limitless. Um, you've given calcium chloride, you know, you've done all these things and you're like, all right, let me, let me see if he, he responds, he or she responds to fluid, um, and and go from there. And maybe they will respond to 250 of normal saline or LR. And then you'd be like, well, maybe I, maybe I am under resuscitated. Maybe they do need another unit of blood. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, um, in a hospital, you'd probably were even in a hospital, the, you know, blood's not unlimited, but in a, in a, in an austere environment, like you want to really go, okay, do they need this next unit of blood? Yes or no. It, can I do something else besides blood? Okay. Um, so uh, what advice would you give to a medic who is they're going down range? Their intention is not to put this person into on a surgical table. I just need to maintain this patient until I can get them to somebody else more competent. 
if there was some general advice as far as the use of my drugs, um, as far as dosing or um, which drugs to reach for first, I guess, what kind of basic advice would you give? So now are we, are we talking about sedating somebody? Is uh, that- we can just start with like, that's, Hey, uh, getting pain under control, you know, then worry about sedations. Let's, we can start basic like that. Um, well, I, I would, you know, depending upon where we are, um, sure. you could start, if you have an IV or not have an IV, but if, let's say you have an IV, I would start with the drugs that are reversible. Like okay. fentanyl is reversible and so is Versed. Um, those are two drugs that you, 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 you know, pe- most people are carrying Narcan and most people are carrying the reversal for Versed. Um, so, and, and if you want to be able to, um, sp- speak to the patient and just kind of continue to monitor, um, their neuro status, then narcotic is, is probably a, a decent way to go. So you could start with fentanyl. And, and start there. You're not going to make somebody's pain zero. Like it's just not going to happen. Um, can you get their pain below a five? Can you get them to where they're not writhing in pain and comfortable? Then I think if you could do that with a sole agent, fentanyl is not a bad place to start. Okay. Um, if you, if now, depending upon the injury, if somebody has got, a, you know, like a, um, an amputation and, you know, maybe you're like, well, I don't think they need to remember the next eight hours of this, but you still want to keep them arousable. Then, you know, fentanyl and Versed is is not a bad place to go. A little bit. You don't have to give a lot. Now, ketamine is a great drug, but sometimes ketamine can definitely muddy the waters when it comes to just monitoring somebody's neurostatus. Um, So, I, I, for example, I was in a scenario where I was taking care of somebody that had, it was a gunshot wound and otherwise stable, like, but the, um, but was just in a lot of pain. So I was using fentanyl and I got to a point that I had given, I had given a lot of fentanyl, probably a lot more fentanyl than most people would have been comfortable with. But I also had airway equipment there. I had the reversal and I had extra hands. I was in a hard stand with plenty of resources. Um, if, you so don't, I, um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, like what is, I guess, what is a, a normal dose of fentanyl? Uh, I, I would say anywhere from, from, a, from the guys that um, I would say anywhere from 50 to 100 mics to start with and just kind of okay. see, what ha- see what happens, right? The, the concern is, is you're gonna, they're going to they're gonna go apneic. Right. Like, and I, I, I mean, so the particular guy that I was taking care of, I was upwards of 500 mics of fentanyl in about 10 minutes. Okay. And he was just t- wide awake and talking to me and was just writhing in pain. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't working. So I just was like, I'm not going to go any higher than that. And I mean, those, that's a, that's a pretty whopping dose of fentanyl. Um, so I chose to just use some ketamine. And I gave him uh, 10 milligrams of ketamine, which the pain went away, but he just did not like the way the ketamine made him feel. Like he just like, you could see like, he's like the walls are moving and this was only 10 milligrams. And he started having a little bit of a anxiety, almost like a panic attack. So that's when I took out a milligram of Versed and gave it to him. And then he chilled out. So um, if I would have started with the ketamine, would I have used that high a dose of fentanyl? Probably not. But I was just trying to avoid the ketamine and Versed because I just wanted to be able to talk to him. 
Um, so, and once I gave him that low dose of ketamine, that low dose of Versed, he was comfortable. Um, and I could still talk to him, but I could definitely tell like if, if he had any type of a neuro injury, it would definitely would have muddied the waters. Okay. Now mentioning like ketamine and, and Versed, kind of the, I would say the newer trend is to not give Versed with ketamine unless is necessary, which is always the caveat. Every, every, every guideline says, don't do this unless you actually need to, which they never say when that is. Yeah, right? I've, I've, uh, I've been definitely part of some of this uh, conversation and just some, some heated, uh, fun uh, debates amongst some of my colleagues. And, you know, I, I, I think if you are in a controlled environment in the United States, um, and or any you know non-war zone, and you have a um, a patient who comes into an emergency room who's in pain. You know they they have a femur fracture, a tibia fracture, whatever it is, and you give them ketamine. They have not just been out in war. You know they've they've got injured. Maybe it was on the soccer field. Maybe it was a car accident. Whatever it was, but their mind is not. Um, uh, they were just getting shot at, you know, they were, not, they were just in combat. So I think the reaction to ketamine um, is potentially different in a controlled environment, in a hospital in the United States than it is in the dirt downrange at night after you just got shot and a bunch of guys are coming at you with nods on and you blast somebody with ketamine. I think their trip is going to be a little bit different than someone's trip in the emergency room. My, what I do is I give the Versed if I give ketamine and especially if okay. I give a, uh, a, anywhere over 10 or 20 or 30 milligrams. But I think the dose of Versed is debatable. Like I think some of the doses that people give, you're like, good Lord, like you don't need to give that much to have an effect. Like start with a milligram and just see what it does. Start with two milligrams, see what it does. But you don't have to start with five and then go, wow, I gave way too much Versed. Give a milligram, one milligram and just stop and just see, see what that does. And I've just, I've had conversations with um, uh, people that have been injured downrange that have gotten pure ketamine and they talk about the hallucinations that they had and they were not pleasant. So you give the Versed, it's not that they're not having those hallucinations, they're just not going to remember them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, I lean more on the side of giving Versed. I don't give a monster dose of it. I start low, I give a milligram, I might give two milligrams um, and just go from there. But that's what I do. Um, and I think also too, you know, from some of the conversations I've had, people are like, well, you can get this profound hypotension from Versed. I think if you're going to get profound hypotension from Versed, you're also going to get profound hypotension from just about anything else you give. Um, so maybe at that point, they don't need ketamine or Versed or fentanyl. What they need is blood. And you should be working more on that than pain control. Like, not that pain is not important, but and when you're when you're forming some sort of a priority list of all the tasks that you need to get done, blood should be pretty high up there. Pain should be up there, but it shouldn't be as high as blood. 
or yeah. trying to stabilize a patient, um, you should you should definitely uh, do some things first. If you're concerned about giving a drug and then bottoming out, then don't give it. Right. Do something to fix the problem so you yes. don't have to worry. Right. Exactly. So, and, and, and sometimes like you have this, like a hypovolemic trauma patient. I, the only thing I might give them is like a milligram of Versed before I give them a paralytic to put an ET tube in just to hope that they don't remember that, uh, I'm putting this ET tube in like, so like it, that's if they're that hypotensive, but typically I'll give Versed and ketamine on induction for a, uh, a trauma patient. Okay. Perfect. Um, well, thank you, Kevin, very much. Yeah, no problem. I hope, uh, like I said, my email's up there. If anybody has any questions, feel free to hit me up um, and we'll go from there. Cool. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Oh.